Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jay. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. What are Sikhs? How are they different from Hindus? Why do they wear turbans? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today on episode three of Religiously Literate. Um, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the fifth largest religion in the world, Sikhism. Um, so Sikhism, I think the reason that I wanted to talk about it um, on the podcast this early is that I think it's a religion that a lot of people have had exposure to, but don't realize it. Um, there are a lot of Sikhs in the world, um, 24 million actually. Most live in the Punjab region in northern India, um, which we'll put a, a nice map in the show notes to show you where that's at. Um, 400,000 live in North America alone. Um, so you probably have encountered some Sikhs, but maybe don't know it. Um, they often get mistaken for Muslims in the United States because a lot of times um, they'll be wearing turbans. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that and have us sort of dispel some of the uh, mystery surrounding Sikhism. Cool. I will say, not to jump back real quick, but I do think, uh, based on what I found, it's important to note that of the 24 to 25 million Sikhs that live in the world, roughly 20 million are in the state of Punjab. So yeah. a huge concentration of them are there. And then there may be another 3 million spread out throughout the rest of India, and then only 2 million in other parts of the world. So very much concentrated in India and and then, you know, a few compared to the masses outside of India, which I think is really interesting because I'm not sure if there's any other religion other perhaps than, say, Hinduism, where outside of the origin state or country, you don't particularly find these people. Right. Do you want to start with a little bit of history and then we can kind of go from there? Sure. Take it away. So Sikhism was founded by a man named Guru Nanak, and I believe people like his full name is Nanak Devji, but for to be brief, I'm just going to call him Guru Nanak. So he was born in 1469, and he was of a merchant class. So I think that he was originally born as a Hindu. Um, and so he was born in present day Pakistan. First of all, let me say that neither Punjabi, which is the primary language of Sikhism, nor Urdu, which is the primary language of Pakistan, which I'm about to say something about Pakistan, are my native tongues. So I've tried to look these things up, <laughs> but I can't say that they are, uh, that I'll, I mean, I'm trying my best with the pronunciations. So anyway, um, so he was born in what is present day uh, Talwandi, Pakistan. Uh, so that's where he was born. Most of what we know about him comes from what are called the – I'm just going to call them birth narratives. I'm not even going to try to say the Punjabi name. But these were actually written well after his death, So, um, but they were written by a follower. So it's, it's definitely kind of looking back and reflection on his life of what, of what we know about him. But we do know that he was born into a merchant class. He was about 30 when he began traveling uh, to pilgrimage sites 
around India, both Hindu and Muslim. Those were kind of huge influences on him. And he was doing this to kind of test his ideas in religious dialogues. He had had kind of an awakening, so to speak. And so he would go and have conversations with Muslims and India and uh, Hindus rather to kind of tease out ideas as he was forming this new philosophy. And then after he finished his travels and had kind of gotten, I guess, the clarity that he needed, he purchased land and founded the village of uh, Kartapur, which is the creator's abode in the 1520s. And this is where he lived the remainder of his life teaching his disciples. Is there anything that you have to add about his life? Um, one thing that I found in my research was that um, one of his, I mean, apart from like founding the religion, he founded this idea of the Sikh Panth, which mm. is the Sikh community, just like the term for the group of all Sikhs. So I, I don't know if, um, I'm sure there are other religions that have a term for the whole community as a whole, uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting that there is this one particular term. Yeah, that is interesting that he, you know, at least to identify his community and make sure that they were... Uh, separated from other people. More about uh, Guru Nanak. So he believed that his work was of divine origin, that it had been divinely inspired. And he defined the ideal person as the Gurmukh, uh, one who is oriented toward the Guru. Okay, uh, but some of the key principles for what he believed were service, self-respect, truthful living, humility, sweetness of the tongue and taking only one's rightful share, which I think is a huge idea that is carried on post when he is gone. Um, But I will say that he, during his lifetime, there were two key things that uh, were started that uh, other uh, gurus continued after him. And the first is the, um, Dharmasala, which was the original place of worship, which goes on to be the Guru Dara, and then Langar, which was the meal where everyone has equal status. And this was really important and radical for the time and continues to be radical in the sense that you have to remember that he is a former Hindu who is cast as super important. And people, it's it's not only just a distinction of where you fall in society, but certain castes do not interact with other castes. They don't sit next to each other. They don't eat in the same places. And so Longar became this meal where everyone sat next to each other on the floor. didn't matter what your gender was, what your caste was. If you were rich or poor, everyone sat next to each other in the most egalitarian way and shared a meal together. And this is something that you can still see um, in Grudars today. But I think like that's very revolutionary Again, not just for the time, but also for him. But eventually, he dies. I didn't write down when he died. But what he did when he died, or right before he died, was he decided who his successor would be. And this was key because he bypassed his own sons and chose someone else in the community. And this is something that kind of continues on. I don't have anything about the second or third guru. Well, I had some stuff that I was reading about... The third guru, Amar Das, who was guru um, – I don't know how – I don't have the years of when he was a guru, but he died in 1574 um, – that he had declared that caste had nothing to do at all with spiritual liberation. So he's kind of building off of this idea that was – seems at this point to have been you know, kind of at the foundations of the Sikh faith. 
And so he was very much into promoting what you were talking about with the sharing of food um, with individuals in the community that aren't necessarily sick and aren't in your traditional Hindu caste, which we'll talk about Hinduism is a little spoiler alert is our next episode. And so if you're confused about what caste is, and then there will be some other terms and ideas that we're going to talk about that relate to um, Sikhism, we'll get to those next time. So hold your questions about Hinduism or about these weird terms that you're not sure of right now. Um, We'll get to them. I will say that, um, all the gurus are important, but I think for the sake of time, we just kind of skipped over the ones that maybe had something a little bit more significant. So I don't want to say that these gurus aren't significant or because we don't mention them, but we will put their names and timelines in the show notes uh, to show respect. It's not a, that we don't care. I don't think that they're important, but just um, for, this, for the sake of time so that we're not only talking about history for an hour. I will say that the, for, the fourth right. guru whose name I did not – write down i'm horrible with my notes he founded originally it was called ram daspur but this comes goes on to eventually be called or renamed amritsar and this is the most holy site in all of uh, sikhism and we'll talk about that a little later so that's kind of his key accomplishment during his reign um and so but he founded the city has, itself but then the fifth guru built what would be known as the Golden Temple. Um, he also or, or organized what would become the Adi Granath um, and helped to develop the independent Sikh identity. Because I think at that time, people didn't really see them as different. They obviously had different beliefs, but they just fit into the general kind of community. And so he really pushed for a unique identity for them. So one thing that he also... Um, was known for is this idea that Sikhs should be able to defend themselves should the need arise, Um, meaning mostly that Sikhs are concerned with correcting injustice. Um, And I think that this is a misconception that uh, is that a lot of people who are familiar with the Sikh faith or even just like tangentially familiar with the Sikh faith have about six is that they are violent, that there is, you know, that they're sort of organized militarily um, and things like that. And some of it comes from this. And then there's also some aspects of the sort of typical things that a uh, member of the Sikh faith will have on their person at all times. And we'll talk about that a little later. Um, but he was kind of, it all comes back to this idea that six should be concerned with correcting injustice. It's not that you're violent just for the sake of violence, but rather that like when you see something that's wrong, you stand up for it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the epitome of that is the fact that he was murdered by the Mughal ruler of India at that time. And so his son became the sixth guru. And one of the first things that he declared was that six would carry arms. And so the first kind of big identity marker of a Sikh becomes the carrying of a sword. And this is directly direct consequence of the fact that his father had been murdered and that was he does an injustice so totally makes sense which that is that is freaking awesome like what other religion in the world is like you should carry a sword i mean yeah really. that's true i'm jealous um do you have any stuff about any of the other gurus um the only other guru well i have i guess two um okay. are the 10th guru so there were 10 human gurus um, 
in the Sikh faith. And the 10th guru, Gobind Singh, uh, who was born in 1666 and dies in 1708. I'm good Wait, with my dates, Jay. Can I, can I, oh yeah. Can I talk about the 9th guru <laughs> first? <laughs> Before yes, we yeah, come to the 10th guru. So the 10th guru is uh, Teg Banda, uh, wait, Bahudur. Uh, I probably messed that up. He was executed by a Mughal um, emperor. So the the first murder of the fifth uh, guru is, is considered the first uprising. And that's when they take swords. And so then the second is um, killed as well. And basically he had been called to New Delhi, I think, and was asked the, the current uh, Mughal emperor had... He was he was definitely getting rid of, of um, Hindu temples, anything that wasn't Islam, anything that like had faces and stuff. He he wanted it gone, and so he calls up the leader of the six because they were a pretty organized community. They take up swords, you know. They they were self autonomous, and so he wanted to talk to him, calls him to Delhi, and tells him that you will bow before God and you will declare yourself a Muslim. Of course, Guru says this is not happening, and so he is publicly executed. And as this is happening, because he wouldn't convert to Islam, there are several people who had gone with him. And it's according to Sikh lore that they were present, but they tried to blend in so that they wouldn't also have the same fate. And so then the 10th guru, which is probably what you were getting ready to get into, decided that the followers would have a unique outward appearance. um, And they would always be recognizable because mm-hmm. of this incident with the ninth guru and where people had been able to hide and not stand up in their identity as Sikhs or Sikh. Wow. So, no, in India, uh, I think among Sikh people, it is called Sikh, but we found that in the United States, for whatever reason, people have changed it to Sikh. So throughout my life, whenever I've engaged with someone of the Sikh faith, they've always said Sikh. And so... Same name, the proper pronunciation, as far as we can tell based on our research, is Sikh, but we may at some point say Sikh just because hearing that for for me 30 years of my life and now trying to get it correct, so we may bounce back and forth, but the correct pronunciation is Sikh and we will try very hard to say Sikh. But I interrupted you. So what were you going to say about the 10th guru? No, you're fine. You're fine. Okay, so the 10th guru um, did two things that really set up the Sikh faith for what it is today. Um, So the first is we talked about earlier with, I think it was the fifth guru who declared, who sort of compiled the Adi Granth, which is kind of this, uh, it's basically the, the most important scripture set of scripture in, um, in the Sikh faith. And he declared, uh, the 10th guru declared that, the Adi Granth would be the 11th guru, the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, and so this is what you will see in every Sikh place of worship, which we talk about the Guru Dwara. Um, every, everyone has one, and it'll be set in a place of importance at the front of it, and we'll kind of get into this later. Um, but he declares this as the 11th guru. So it's treated as if it were a human person. Um, it's you know, it has a specific resting place within the Gurdwara and things like that. So he also establishes what's called the Khalsa, which is this special group of committed Sikh believers um, and establishes this, what Jay's talking about with this idea of 
um, six should have a particular outward appearance. So, yes. Yeah. And that consists of the five Ks, which uh, I will not say them in Punjabi. I will just say them in English. But these became a model for what it meant to be a part of the Sikh community. They included one, uncut hair, two, a comb of for the top knot on your hair, a short sword, an iron bracelet, and then special underwear that all Sikh people wear. One thing that I found that was really interesting um, about the 5Ks and that I think is interesting from an American perspective, because I was telling my wife this, um, that the 5Ks, like wearing the 5Ks, you just wear them because you're supposed to, because the guru said so. Oh, yeah. There's not really this like sort of, well, this is why you wear this thing and this is why you wear this thing and you have to leave your hair uncut because of this reason. There's lots of different reasons why people explain why you should do these things, but there's no sort of doctrinal, like, this is why we do this. People just do it because they're supposed to. And in America, I think we, like, struggle with just doing things because we're supposed to. We always want to ask why. We want to know, like, well, why am I doing this thing or whatever. Um, And I thought that was really interesting because Americans, we can't get our – we can't get out of that. Mm, Yeah. I'll also say two important things um, about the 10th Guru. Is he officially closed the canon, which I know will make Ryan especially excited. (laughs) Um, But he officially closed the the sick canon. And um, I can can give you some details about the – the canon in general, but he closed it, as you said, he ended the line of human gurus, but he also declared that the Adi Granth would be the eternal guru for Sikhs to come. So it got renamed the Guru Granth Sahib. And as Ryan said, it's in every uh, place of worship, but like when people are seeking guidance in the same way that amongst those first 10 gurus, they went and asked questions. That is how the current guru is utilized. And there's some ways and rituals that we'll talk about a little later that you can explicitly see that. But like the, the, as Brian said, the guru is, is treated as a human. Um, there's a special ceremony to, you know, in the morning, to more or less wake it up to, to put, to put it out in, into the temple. But it is, a living, breathing thing to followers, which I think is really important. Um, but speaking of the text itself, it contains... Before you worked- go there... Oh, okay. One other thing about the 10th Guru. This guy was like super important. He did all the things. Oh, yes. Um, he also mandated the requirement for wearing of turbans for men, and then they're optional for women. Um, okay. And I think that is... Like I said in the beginning, you know, one of these reasons why I think, you know, we should be talking about six because throughout the United States, if you see someone wearing a turban, I think probably because of post 9-11 Islamophobia, everyone assumes that like you see someone in a turban, you associate that with the Middle East and therefore they must be Muslim. Let's forget about the fact that there's Muslims all around the world. Um, But there's this idea that like, that person must be Muslim, but reality is that 90 to 99% of the people that you see in the United States wearing a turban are actually sick. They have not Muslim at all. Um, and I think that's like a big part of why I wanted to talk about this is like dispelling that assumption. Which is really important. Um, so now I'm going to talk about the text itself. 
Okay. It contains works from the first five gurus as well as the ninth guru. It also contains the work of four major bards. Uh, that includes um, Sata, Balvand, Sundar, and Mardana. It, it contains 11 um, bots, which are different poets uh, around India. So, for instance, Kabir, Namdev, Ravidas. Um, Kabir was a bhakti poet, and I th- also believe that Guru Nanak was a devote, devoted bhakti as well. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Um, as well as other Sufi uh, poets. So bhakti and Sufi poets definitely had an influence in the... In, in the text itself, in total, For who there, don't know what's bhakti. Uh, it was short definition of bhakti. So it is uh, basically a devotional sect of Hinduism, and we can explore and it more. And Sufis are mystical Muslims. Is really the best way to kind That's of talk about that. <laughs> the um, the most famous uh, Sufis are the whirling dorvishes who are Turkish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we will talk all about that at some point when we get to Islam. But yes, the... the and if you've ever Muslim, read Rumi, Rumi was a Sufi poet. Yes. Um, so there are a total of 36 contributors to the Adi Granth, also known as the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, it was likely composed between... Um, the 12th and 17th centuries, so quite a long time for the building of the canon. It is a standard. The current also standard, fairly recent. Yes, incredibly recent, um, which is of, of, of key notice. Uh, it has a standard of 1,430 pages. And the interesting thing about this that I thought was so cool is that all editions have the exact same page numbers and content on the pages. So if I told you to go to the Broken into Ragas, which is like a um, Indian form of musical structure but like if i was like you're gonna go to the second line on page 13 the second line on page 13 of every copy is exactly the same which that's cool yeah because when you, i mean when you're thinking about the bible there's so many editions of the bible and even if you mm-hmm. have the same edition like the king james version i could have a king james version you could have a king james version we if we go to the same page number we may not find the same content Luckily, it's broken mm-hmm. into like verses and chapters, so that's an easier way of looking. But I do think it's cool that no matter where you are, you can say, go to this page, this spot, you're going to see the exact same word or content. So I think that's really cool. Um, and there are three major section, sections of the um, Granth Sahib, which include the first section, which is three liturgical prayers uh, that Sikhs utilize pretty much every day. The second... Uh, which is primarily 31 ragas, which is kind of more musical stuff. And this is often what you'll hear when you're at the Guru Da'ara. They'll be singing verses, often accompanied by the tabla and other instruments. And and the tabla is a a type of Indian drum. And then the the third section is an epilogue of miscellaneous works. There are other sacred texts. So there is the Dasam Granth, which is attributed to the 10th guru, uh, Gobind Singh, who had done so much. But although it's primarily attributed to Gobind Singh, or I, I guess I should say Guru Gobind Singh, uh, it's, it likely had other contributors beyond his lifetime. So although he is the known as the primary author, 
it's kind of accepted that other people also contributed to this. This has uh, 1,428 pages of devotional texts, um, some autobiographical works, uh, miscellaneous writings, and mythical narratives and anecdotes. Um, There's other sacred literature by early Sikhs of the Bai Gurdas and Bai Nand Lagoya. And this work is approved. There's the, um, the Sikh Code of Conduct that was written um, I'm not it's later on in my notes but in the Sikh code of or the Sikh code of conduct there is which is called the Sikh Rahit this particular sacred literature is approved for singing in uh, Guru Daras so that's another sacred text and then there are the birth narratives these are the accounts of uh, Guru Nanak's life produced by the Sikh community uh, within the 17th century, so also fairly recently, considering when he was actually alive and when these narratives actually came to, into being. There are the manuals of Code of Conduct, which provide insight into the evolution of the Khalsa Code in the 18th and 19th centuries. So that's really interesting because a lot of times the evolution of a community, you don't necessarily have great access to, but right. we have, you know, starting from the end of the human reign of gurus moving forward, there is significant insight and information into how the community evolved, what changed, what didn't change, which we often don't necessarily have like in written format. Um, And then there is the pleasure of the guru, which this is a focuses on stories of two warrior gurus in particular, uh, guru Hargobind and guru Gobind Singh. And that's kind of the most of the sacred text in general. So I think we should um, maybe take a second and talk about what Sikhs actually believe. Yes. Since we've done a lot of talking about history. Yes. And sort of outward physical appearance and things you'll see and, you know, things like that. I think we should talk about like what they actually believe in. Um, so, <clears throat> because, you know, this is religion after all. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Sikhs are monotheistic. Um, so like Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, um, they believe in one God. This God is eternal, genderless, which I thought was interesting. Um, but should be noted, um, not to interrupt you, but should be noted that although yeah, the God ahead. is genderless – like in most texts of various religious traditions mm-hmm. is talked about in masculine pronouns. Yes. Yes. Which I wonder if some of that is linguistic. Yeah. Or patriarchy. Not just like patriarchal. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This is also the creator of everything and is also present within all of creation. And God is both imminent and transcendent. So that means that like God is here on this earth and also in the heavens or wherever that is in the supernatural realm um, to use a more like neutral term. Um, And God's imminence is visible through what they call the divine order of things in the world. So everything works the way it does because God said so. Mm. Can I? So I think the preamble of the Adi Granth really 
summarizes what you just said. So I'm going to read that. And, and what it is yeah. is, there is one supreme being, the eternal reality, the creator, without fear and devoid of enmity, immor- immortal, never incarnated, self-existent, known by grace through the guru, the eternal one, from the beginning, through all time, present now, the everlasting reality. And I'll put that in the show notes. Cool. Um, so after this, like, this existence of God, you know, what is it that six are trying to, I guess, strive for? Um, in Sikhism, there's this idea that humans are separated from God and that humans are distracted by everything going on in the world, which should be pretty easy to understand in 2019. Um, and that this distraction creates this sort of illusion that humans are separated from God. Because like we were just saying, you know, if God is imminent in everything around, then we're not really that separated from God. And if everything is, if God is present in all creation, then God has to be present within us um, as humans. And so we don't actually exist separate from God. And so this kind of gets into this idea, and I'm going to ask Jay for help here because you know you've been to India. Um, you Jay's like the super world traveler, and um, this is not true. Yes, it is. It's totally true. And so don't lie. And um, Jay also has much more experience with Eastern or Asian religions than I do. Um, and one concept that's really important to um, Sikhs and to Hindus and to Buddhists and all these traditions that come out of India around this time period and before is this idea of samsara, which is this, to put it most simply in the way that I understand it as someone who has very limited experience with these traditions, is that it is this cycle of death and rebirth. So I think people in the United States and in Europe like to think about reincarnation as being, you know, a specifically Buddhist thing, or at least in my experience, like growing up in the United States and like my understanding of this idea of reincarnation was all somehow wrapped up in Buddhism. I really had like no sort of reasoning for that. I mean, I probably saw it on TV or something, but this idea of reincarnation and this cycle of death and rebirth is found in all of these traditions. And basically the idea is that if you can get out of that cycle, then you become one with God. Am I right? Yes. All right. Like, so it's true that the idea of uh, samsara and also karma, which I think is often this idea of like, we water it down to, um, things will come back to you. So if you put bad energy into the world, then bad energy will come back to you. If you put good energy into the world, good energy will come back to you. And on a certain level, that is true, but it's not necessarily immediate. So if I'm mean to you today, that doesn't mean that if something bad happens to me like next week, that's a result of the karma. It's right. really more, it's more of like you put energy into this ocean and the waves kind of move. And through your cycle of lifetimes, you will 
for every good thing that had or good thing that you did or bad thing that you did throughout your lifetimes that is built up and acted out. So it's not, it's definitely more of a slow burn versus, you know, instant gratification. But that being said, both karma and um, samsara are are key elements of all faiths and traditions that start in India. But what makes it interesting in the Sikh faith is that samsara can be interrupted by God's grace. And this is a part that I I can't say I completely understand, but what my understanding of it is that, as you said, we do things for our personal satisfaction and that can distract us from God. And so it seems to be that the divine reveals themselves through us and is, is well, first of all, it's present around us all the time. And but because we are distracted by our personal gratification, we are blinded to the presence of the divine. So then the divine reveals itself in certain ways. And I think that for Sikh in particular, this comes by way of the the word of the divine. And so the more that you engage and meditate on the word of the divine, the closer you are with the divine. And so as you do that, you kind of can become one with the divine, something that you can achieve both in your lifetime and post-lifetime. And I think that as you become closer and connected and aware of the presence of the divine, you are able to kind of jump out of samsara. So Sikh believe that the more that you meditate and engage with the word of the divine, then the closer you're pulled to divine. So therefore, when you die, that's the last time you die and you actually end up united with the divine is what I, my understanding, I read it like three times, so I could still be wrong, (laughs) but that was my understanding of where God's grace comes in. Because if you engage with God, then God's grace helps you to escape the life cycle of rebirths. Yeah. Um, So if you're sick and we're totally wrong, Get in our emails, um, religiously. Yes, please do. Religiouslitpodcast at gmail dot com. Um, yes. So one thing too that we neglected to mention until thirty minutes into this thing, or however long this, wherever this ends up being after it's edited, um, is what sick means. So the term sick just means a student or a disciple, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Because it's this idea that like you're constantly learning and um, following in this path. Um, And so what are, I know you did a little more research on the sort of practical, like ritual and um, like the things that people do as six than I did, surprisingly. I don't know why I didn't. Um, So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. Before I will say that though, um, one thing that I do think is important to mention is that this is where that tradition, so belief versus act or what people are, what the religion is versus how people practice it kind of comes into play. So in Sikh tradition, the devotee worships a universal God, but in actual Sikh doctrine and practice, people are, God is partially embodied in the divine name and the collective words and the person of the guru and the saints. So the belief and doctrine is or one universal God. But in practice, when I'm saying God's name, I am invoking God. When I am reading the 
text, I'm invoking God. When I am talking about the guru's past and invoking their name and talking about them, I am invoking God. But the actual practice is that there's just one universal God. So I think you can see people like praying to images in front of the gurus. Um, that's the, where that belief versus practice kind of can contradict in some ways. Um, but in terms of actual practice and rituals that people do, and I have, there are four that I have. So the first is the naming. And this is, um, so after a baby is born, they are taken to the uh, Gudwara and their uh, prasad is offered to the guru. And so prasad is, I think a little translation is offering. Oftentimes when you go to the Gudwara, it is a, um, it's, mi- it's made of like some type of wheat and uh, sugar, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really sweet. And lots of butter. There's like so much ghee is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they put it in your hand, and oftentimes when you start at the uh, Gudara, I went to a couple, I've been to one in the United States and two or three in, in India. I went to one in Delhi. And then I went to um, the Golden Temple, which is the Amritsar, the holiest site in um, Sikh faith. And at all three, well, not at the one in America, but at the two in India that I went to, when you show up, or sometime as after you've entered, you receive prasad in your hand and you offer that um, while you're in the temple and like your hands are so oily. But when you leave, they give they give you a, and you usually put it in like into a pot or something. But when you leave, they give you some fresh prasad. And I will be the first to say that I visited several gudaros multiple times. So I get the prasad, which is like <laughs> makes me childish. But that stuff is delicious. So, um, so you offer some prasad and it doesn't, I mean, it can be different things, but typically it is this kind of like, um, uh, I don't even it, – it, it's kind of like a porridge, I guess, but it's very thick in it so they can cut it and, like, give you, like, a portion of it and it, like, holds in your hand. It doesn't, like, melt or anything. So, like, when you offer it, it's like the whole piece goes together. I don't know else, how else to describe it, but it's like a thick porridge that's super solid. thick and holds together. Yeah, it's a solid. Um, and so that's offered uh, to the guru, Granth Sahib, and then – you, I think it's often the father will open a, a page of the Guru Granth at random, and the name of the child is chosen based on the first letter of the first composition on, on the left page. Oftentimes, the compositions will run from one page to the next, so it may not be like the first line. You might have to go in 5, 10, 15 lines so you get to the first the beginning of the first composition, but whatever that first letter is, the name that... in forms the name of the child, which is in a way like going to the guru and asking for advice, right? Um, And then traditionally, a person, if you are born male, right after your name, it becomes uh, Singh, which means lion. And if you are uh, a female, then you get uh, Kaur, I think, which means princess. And in the West, this just becomes your middle name, whereas it becomes like your surname in... um, in India, which is why, like, the last name Singh, there's so many people with the last name Singh for this reason. Okay. Uh, the baby is then given sweet water that's been stirred with a sword. And the first five stanzas of uh, Guru Nanak's uh, Japi are recited, which is a text that the Guru Nanak um, composed. In weddings, 
those happen in front of the Guru Granth Sahib, and the couple will circle it four times and say four vows. Uh, prior to this, they listen to a wedding hymn that will be read by the, uh, the head, the, the leader of the community in the sense that the leader is the person who's like the expert at singing the hymns and, and reading the text. And they typically run those. That person will read it. And then as the bride and groom are walking around the, uh, the text, the community will continue to sing the wedding hymn as they recite their vows. Um, and, they, and they do this in a clockwise motion. And their vows are um, the life or righteousness and duty, um, a maintaining a bond between themselves, to be enthusiastic regardless of circumstances, and, to don't be, and not to be drawn to worldly things, and to have a balanced approach to life. So those are the four vows that they will say. Um, at death, the sick people are cremated, and in, in the entire um, uh, Guru Granth Sahib is read. This may take a few days. The whole thing? Um, for, the whole thing is read. Really? Yeah. All 1,300 yeah. and some pages? Yes. Wow. I don't think that one person particularly reads it, but I think over the course of like days, people just read it out loud. Right. And so however long that takes for that to be completed – um, within 10 days of the entire scripture being read, um, final prayers are offered to the dead in the person's memory. So is and the person, kind of, so is the person cremated before it's read? I believe the person is cremated before it's read and then they start reading the text. Okay. Interesting. And then there is, um, the final kind of ritual that I found is the initiation. And so this can happen at any time in your lifetime. It's it, I, 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 not to be reductionist, but I think that in a lot of Protestant uh, Christian communities, a person decides the point that they're going to be baptized and, you know, a true, let Jesus come into their heart, become a true Christian. My understanding is that it's the same here, where at the point that you want to be initiated into the um, Kasala, that is your decision. So you could be seven years old, you could be 37 years old, but that you make that decision when you're ready to join the community. Um, and if you convert, I believe you go through this initiation as well. And so during this, you have to recite the uh, prayers from memory. I believe that there are three that you recite. And as you are saying the prayers from memory, you are stirring sweet water with a sword. So the same uh, motion that would happen as a, right after a baby is born, the sweet water they would get that had been stirred with a sword. You then drink the sweet water five times after you've completed the prayers. You, the sweet water is poured on your head five times. And, um, and yes. And so then... The oh, you will say during this as the water is being poured on you that the Khalsa belongs to the wonderful Lord, victory belongs to the wonderful Lord, and um, so you say this during those times. You say it in Punjabi, but I didn't write it in Punjabi, I just wrote it in English. Um, and then afterwards, uh, a verse is read and prasad is passed out to the community, and that is kind of the initiation process for officially joining the community. So You've been to a Gurdwara, mm -hmm. several. Um, I have yes. not. So what's that like? Because you've been to like the holiest of holies, and then you've been to stuff in the United States. Not to say that stuff in the United States is any lesser or anything, but 
Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there is a difference between going to the holiest of holies and then just going to like your community, your friendly space, neighborhood right? gurdwara, right? Mm-hmm. So you walk in and you immediately have to remove your shoes, and um, there is like a shoe room, and so it depends on where you are. So at like the temple in in Delhi, that one is open twenty four seven, as many of them are in India. They don't actually really close, whereas in America they kind of have set hours. Um, so there are people who mostly, at least in the one in India or in Delhi, who there are women who you give your shoes to and they give you a number and then they'll put your shoes in this like massive shoe room. That's awesome. Um, and then you it's go like back valet for you your, your shoes. shoes. You, be, you drop off your shoes at the shoe valet in America. <laughs> you drop off your shoes in the shoe room. And then you go into the kind of temple area. And depending on how big the temple is, so the one in Delhi is quite large and you go through several rooms. And um, some rooms, there it's... Uh, the gurus are very much against any anthropomorphic conceptions of the divine. So you don't really see any anthropomorphic things within the temple itself. If you do, it's like very specifically like this is this guru and, mm-hmm. and like that's who it is. But it's like this is not uh, – This isn't God. This isn't right. Yeah, this is the, the guru. So you, they're like different rooms and you'll see people kind of sitting and meditating. They might be reading. But as you go through, there's often a massive room. And you can hear this throughout wherever you are. Um, there's a massive room where um, there'll be, it's kind of like a stage generally. And there it's often three men. There'll be one in the middle who has the guru Gram Sahib in front of of him and it's like pretty large i would say um that the book is probably like four by five feet like it's a really big book so that's like and somewhat somewhat similar to like the torah in a synagogue then yes yeah it, it's it's pretty massive and so and it's kind of up on um a little bit of a uh, I don't know. There's like something holding it that it's leaning against, like a ledge or whatever. And then they usually have this – it's like a fan but not in the fan that you would think of. So it's like a stick and it's it's not feathers but there's like fabric on it and they are constantly kind of more or less fanning the text as they sing. And then there's usually at least two people on the side, sometimes more, with instruments and they are performing. So it's very lively. I, For me, it reminded me of just being in a black church and like gospel music being played all the time. Of course, it's Punjabi music, sure. but like it's, it's very lively. And so this person is singing and in the American temple that I've been to, it's just one massive room and everyone kind of sits in this room and you listen as the as the prayers are being said and and they're and they're reading the text um and the one the two temples that i went to in india they they would this the performer i guess would be in one room you could hear them throughout the temple but there were many rooms you could walk through uh throughout the temple and so you would there would be always a room where you would pick up prasad and then you you know walk with it for a couple of rooms then you would like offer your prasad often in front of a picture of of a guru and then you know you continue your walk through and of course you don't you go at your own pace so if you want to be there for hours that's fine if you only want to be there for 15 minutes like that's fine too and then you would as you were exiting out you would you know get prasad again that you eat and then once you exit so so basically it's just a series of rooms uh for contemplation and really 
you know, in, invoking the divine, but Punjabi music is always in the background. If, if that gives you an image of, of what's going on mm-hmm. and you'll see people, um, both men and women who might be meditating or reading smaller copies of, um, of the text on their own. Maybe they're singing along, you know, sometimes people are singing along with the person who's reading, sometimes not. Uh, and then afterwards, you get led into a room where they have langar. And this is optional. You don't have to go into the room. But you go in and people are lined up along the floor. And so you'll, you'll see a – it's basically like a mat that goes along the length of the room. And then like two feet later, there's another mat. And so as you walk in, they just kind of direct you. And you sit next to the person like you sit uh, cross-legged. And you sit down. And once your um, section has been filled, then they'll – people will sit across from you. And they're probably about four or five feet across from you because there's enough for people to walk. So once the line is filled up, then people start walking by. And they first they'll come with a roti, which is it's kind of like naan. It's a different type of Indian bread. And so they so they bring you bread. Or, or no, I'm sorry. They'll bring you a cup. They bring you silverware and they bring you a plate. Then they bring you bread. There's always a dal, which is type of lentil dish. They'll bring you rice. And it's, it's, it's always vegetarian. And they walk by and they have these like metal buckets and they kind of like serve you the food and you can, you can always say no. So whatever it is that you want, they say, you know, they'll give it to you and you sit there and you eat in a community. So you may know the people you're next to, you may not know them, but you eat in this meal and you're allowed to eat as much as you want. Um, and, and then once you're done, you, you know, pick up your dishes, you go and they have a place where you drop them off. They're immediately washed so that the next group who comes in can eat. And so this is why a lot of the um, Gurudwaras are open 24-7 in India because the kitchen is open 24-7. And so people will take turns cooking and serving in the, in the Gurudwaras. And this is open, again, to anyone. So if you are a homeless person, you are just as welcome as someone who is uh, you know, coming to worship versus someone who is a tourist who's coming to see it. I was very lucky at my time in Delhi we had gone there and I don't know, I looked lost or whatever. So this man came up to me and was like, is this your first time in the Guru Dara? I said, yes. And so he actually gave me a tour, a kind of behind the scenes tour of their whole operation. And, nice. and they're literally like women sitting in this kitchen, like 10 women just making chapati, making chapati, making chapati. <laughs> and they put it in this machine that cooks it. And that thing, he told me like, they can do like 10,000 an hour. Holy cow. Yes, and they're they're just making so much. And so, and one thing I forgot to mention is there are different places throughout the uh, the temple where you can deposit money, and a lot of that money goes to the upkeep of Langar, the upkeep of the facility itself, and whatever the the community needs. So it's um it's a really awesome experience. I would encourage people to go to their uh, local um. Uh, Gurdwaras, if they can. I know I went with a class in America and basically our professor just called and said, you know, I'd like to bring my class on this day. Is that okay? And they said, sure. And uh, so we went, I think we hung out in the, where they were, you know, performing the scriptures for about 30 minutes. And that was interesting, but also hard because it's completely in a language that none of us understood, but it was interesting to see it. And then um, when it was time to leave, they directed us downstairs where we participated in Langar with the community. That's awesome. Yeah. So that is that. Well, do you have any last final thoughts about Sikhism? Yes, I do have a couple of things. So one of them is, oh, where are my notes? Um, Okay, so I will say that um, 
Six believe that spiritual liberation, the escaping of the recycle of births, is obtained through transcending self-centeredness. And they believe that the five impulses of self-centeredness include lust, anger, greed, attachment to worldly things, and pride. Which I think that anyone with any sense of American values or even Western values, that those sound very similar to the seven deadly sins. So Mm -hmm. um, I thought that that was kind of interesting. But in contrast to that, in order to combat those things, they really profess living in truth and honesty and um, wanting to cultivate the values of, um, or the virtues rather, of wisdom, contentment, justice, humility, purity, truthfulness, uh, temperance, love, forgiveness, charity, and fear of the divine. And there is a really strong emphasis on living through hard work and sharing. So do the best that you can in this world and accumulate things, but don't just accumulate for the sake of accumulating. Make sure that for everything that you have, you are giving back to your community and making it better which I think in one sense is evident through Langar, but the fact that it's like community service is embedded in the beliefs of the community. And I think we all want to say that or believe that we are good people and we do good things. But the fact that like in order to be a part of this community, that's Mm -hmm. something that you have to submit to, um, which I don't think is always necessarily true of of, of communities, the the idea that like service is essential. so, so there's that. And then the last thing I will say is that, again, uh, this is one of those things where there is what the practice or what the scripture says, what the belief is, and then what it's put into practice. So throughout the text themselves and the gurus themselves really promoted equality of the sexes and uh, like gender roles and things like that. And so women are supposed to be able to do everything. But that being said, the reality is that men dominate most sick institutions and they, particularly in India, sick women live lives that are no different than women in other religious traditions. You don't really see a difference in those values in place in their everyday lives. Um, so that's something that is interesting, maybe a little sad for as revolutionary as what the guru and all the fellow gurus kind of called for, you don't see that in practice. But I do think that there is a movement of women, particularly in the West, to kind of push for our religion calls for equality. So why aren't we actually practicing that? Yeah, that was one thing that that I ran into too, was that this idea of like some of the younger six in the United States, in Great Britain and other parts of Europe, is it Great Britain? Is it England? I don't even know. Um, what is it now after UK. Brexit? The UK? There we go. Thank you. Um, UK. Um, there's this idea that like, because I watched some videos that were like interviews with six and I think it was like a BuzzFeed video or something. I'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, one of the young women was talking about how she had, even though like, like you're saying, you know, this is practically, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of standard traditional gender roles. There's this sense of pride in being a part of a religion that at its foundation was very much egalitarian. And I think that, I thought that was really yeah. interesting. And like you were saying, you know, that there's, there's this movement now to like, you know, recognize that and make that more actually what's happening. Yeah. 
Um, the last thing I'll say, which I think is probably something we should have said at the top. So what we <laughs> talked about today would be like the orthodoxy of the Sikh faith. Um, there are various ways that people practice the Sikh faith, how they identify themselves as Sikh. So like, for instance, we talked in the, the five K's haircutting, there are definitely Sikhs who cut their hair. And there's actually a movement where it's cutting your hair does not take away the fact that you are sick. So I don't think that people should walk away thinking, oh, if, if you don't do this, that means that you're not sick. There mm-hmm. are various ways of practicing it that are based on your family, your community, where you are in the world, because it is a little, things have to change uh, in the United States versus in India. So as a, especially as you're trying to adapt um, to your new environment and culture and things like that. So I, I think it's important to note that not every person who identifies as a sick will believe or practice the things that we've talked about today. Um, but just know that there is diversity within the community itself. But here we have talked about the history, kind of where it came from, and some of the general things that historically have been a part of the identity, but may not necessarily be you know, followed 100% today. So I think that that's important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And that's all I've got. Awesome. Well... Thank you all for listening to our third episode. Um, We hope you enjoyed it. We hope we didn't mispronounce too many Punjabi words for you. Um, Yes, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Apologies from both of us. Um, If you like what we're doing, consider leaving us a review on any of the places, any and all of the places where you may be finding us. We're on iTunes or it's not, podcasts aren't on iTunes anymore. They're on like, Apple Podcasts, right? Apple Podcasts. I'm showing mm-hmm. how often I listen to Apple Podcasts. Um, we're on Spotify. <laughs> Spotify, yes, Stitcher. We Spotify. We're on Google Podcasts. All those places. So leave us a review. Um, we'll read what you say on air. Um, so yes. let us know what you think. And yeah, you can connect with us in other ways. We're on Twitter at Religious Lit Pod. We're on Facebook at Facebook. Facebook, facebook.com <laughs> slash religiously literate. Um, you can email at us. What's our email address, Ryan? Religiouslitpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Yeah, so connect with us. Let us know what you think. If you love it, if you hate it, something that you want to hear that we can put into the queue, just let us know. Yeah.